Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy. This is episode 18, A Noble Cause. My name is Graham Crowley. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast has been created for an adult audience, so listener discretion is advised. I accept ownership of all thoughts and opinions in this podcast. This week represents the 19th anniversary of the brutal murders of the Singh children. It must be a very difficult time for the relatives. My condolences to all concerned. Some updates. It was my intention to bring you an interview with Shiv Seeker, wife of Max Seeker, this episode. Shiv has COVID. The interview has been delayed and I'll bring it to you as soon as possible. I've had no reply from Queensland Police requesting an opportunity to interview the arresting officer. Not even a courtesy reply acknowledging receipt of the request. The Queensland Police have also not requested any further information regarding the person I call Joe Cool from the Solomon Islands, who was the subject of Operation Alpha Karma. There is a strong connection between Operation Alpha Karma and the murder of the Singh siblings. But why would they? They have a conviction in the Supreme Court. Their file is closed. Fresh evidence is of no concern to them. That is a matter for the courts. I have had an acknowledgement of receipt of my email to the Attorney-General, but am yet to receive a reply. Hedley Thomas from the Australian newspaper is considering the story. Throughout this episode, you will hear various recordings of statements and witness evidence. They were all recorded by friends of mine. You will not hear from anyone in this episode directly involved in the case. In the last episode, referring to the garden fork, the alleged murder weapon, I said this, There is no one defining part of the garden fork evidence you heard in episode 16, and again now in this episode, which you can categorically conclude the garden fork evidence was tampered with. But when you join all the dots together... That is the only safe conclusion. One retired detective I know took me to task over those comments. He agreed there had been a miscarriage of justice, but he was not persuaded there had been police corruption. From what he heard, he believed it was possibly incompetence on the part of the forensic team. I pondered that at length, and I concluded that if an experienced detective had heard it, perhaps it may be accurate so I decided I needed to flesh it out to try and confirm whether the evidence was interfered with, whether there was corruption as such, and perhaps even noble cause corruption, or was the evidence regarding the garden fork a series of blunders, incompetence, and perhaps even inexperience. If you are wondering what noble cause corruption is, I will speak on that later in the episode. From talking to a number of people, experienced people, people who should know, there is, and always has been, a suspicion the garden fork had been planted by someone, that the evidence had been interfered with, that the fork was not in the garage, behind the barbecue, on the 22nd of April 2003, that it appeared there some days after that, from wherever it had been. The suspicion was that blood from the victims had been wiped over the fork 
and the fork then placed in a location that only Max Seeker would know, to point guilt towards Max Seeker. It was, after all, a part of the Crown case that only someone like him would know where to find the garden fork, buried in a darkened garage. And as I said previously, the house was under police guard, 24 hours per day, every day from 22 April until it was released back to the Singh family in mid-May. If the garden fork had been planted, it had to be by a rogue police officer. These are serious allegations. The Queensland police are justifiably proud of the result of their hard work in the Singh murders. For someone to come along and make allegations of that magnitude without evidence is a huge insult. How do I resolve it? Was there police corruption or was it a case of incompetence? Was there a garden fork parked up there behind the barbecue on the first days or wasn't there? Queensland police would not be happy with those sort of allegations swirling around in the community. That undermines their good work, and it is unpleasant to raise them. At the same time, allegations of corruption go to the very heart of our judicial system. In the last episode, I said it took two weeks for the Garden Fork to be found. I need to correct that statement. It took less than eight hours for the fork to be found, but it took two weeks to observe the blood on it and to seize it. In the last episode, I also said scenes of crime officers, or SOCOs as they are referred to, didn't inspect the barbecue storage area. Well, that may be correct or it may be inaccurate. You will need to listen to the evidence and decide for yourself. I will be playing some parts of the evidence later in this episode. The police witnesses were coy about whether they searched the barbecue storage area when questioned at the committal and trial. But were they coy because they knew they were skirting around the fringes of perjury and could see serious prison time flashing before their eyes? Or were they coy because admitting that they hadn't searched the area would show them up as incompetent? in the eyes of their peers. Professional pride would be at stake and in their consciousness. What we do know is the Sockos were all over the barbecue area. Sockos saw the garden fork in situ behind the barbecue on the day the bodies were found and again the next day and on many days after that. For two weeks apparently before the lead detective happened to look over the back of the barbecue and saw something suspicious on the garden fork. If only there was a photograph of the garden fork sitting there silently, in amongst the other garden tools, waiting to be discovered, it would give me enormous comfort, and I'm sure it would provide comfort to those claiming the garden fork had been planted. But there is not. 1,500 crime scene photos but none of the murder weapon in situ. There are two vague photos of the barbecue storage area I post on Facebook, one taken some distance away from the barbecue looking in the garage and one taken some distance away from inside the garage looking out. Both show a portion of the barbecue cover, nothing more. And the crime scene video goes nowhere near the barbecue but we have the testimony of four scenes of crime officers who swore they saw the garden fork standing there behind the barbecue. Shouldn't that be enough to persuade me that the garden fork was there all along and not introduced at some later time? Ordinarily, I would say yes. Definitely yes. But not this time. And why? Well, there are a number of reasons. Seven, in fact. The lack of supporting photographs and video is the big one. Inexplicable. I was going to say unheard of, but I stopped myself. The Queensland police case of the Leanne Holland murder and Graham Stafford raises its head again. The subject of my previous podcast. Almost identical circumstances. Stunning, really. A crucial piece of evidence, a maggot, seen by one socko, 
in the boot of Graham Stafford's car where police claimed he had stored Leanne Holland's body. No photographs, no video, even though a photographer and videographer took vision of the boot of the car with the Socko pointing out other things in the boot. No mention of the maggot in notes, notebooks, or on the video commentary. And the maggot not taken possession of at that time. And then the maggot found again next day, in the boot. And again no supporting photographs, video or notes. Perhaps that's why I'm anxious and apprehensive about the lack of supporting photographic evidence here. The location of the garden fork behind the barbecue, behind the clothes air dryer, with the proposition that Max Seeker, the only one who knew it was there. And the proposition that he returned the garden fork to its original location after murdering the victims, but not the mob. The lack of significant amounts of blood on the garden fork and no blood on the piece of carpet the garden fork was resting on. My personal knowledge of what fine and thorough work Sockos do. The pride that they take in their work working in difficult circumstances, under pressure, but I honestly have trouble accepting they would have missed such a significant find, literally staring them in the face. The evidence of Dr Alumbi, who was not satisfied the garden fork was a murder weapon for all three victims, despite considerable pressure from police to say otherwise. And that in itself throws a huge spanner in the works. Was there more than one killer? The now known claim by a blood splatter expert that the blood on the garden fork was more likely transferred on the fork rather than resulting from the impact with a body. From the supplied photographs, the red-brown staining, assumed to be blood, appears to be in the form of transfer stains. A transfer stain is blood staining that has been deposited onto the fork through contact with a blood-bearing surface. There is no evidence of impact blood staining that would be caused by strike or blow into wet blood. An impact blood stain pattern results from an object striking liquid blood. And this comment you heard in the last episode certainly does not inspire confidence. I asked him on at least three occasions while I was at the scene if he wanted me to look at boxes and property in the garage and each time he said no. I indicated that I was not happy with whoever did the original search of the garage. On Anzac Day, 25 April 2003, three days after the discovery of the bodies, Max Seeker agreed to conduct a walkthrough of the house with the detectives to help them understand what he did when he arrived at the house on the Tuesday afternoon, where he went, what he saw, etc. It occurred to me that whilst there was no photographs or video of the barbecue area, It was important to see if a copy of that walkthrough existed. Back to the Seeker house. It transpired there were two copies of the walkthrough available. A VHS version, which had been edited and was of no help, and a DVD, which appeared to be unedited and complete. The tape starts off behind the Pajero, with the roller door up, tantalisingly close to the barbecue and the pitchfork, but facing in the wrong direction. Max Seeker was formally cautioned he need not answer any questions nor make any statement, but he freely conducted the walkthrough with them. On the surface anyway, Max Seeker willingly answered questions and appeared helpful, but very upset. From there, Max and the detectives walked to the back door of the garage, where he entered the garage initially on 22 April. He went into detail about where he went, what he touched, what he didn't touch, what he saw. From there, they walked to the front of the Pajero, to all the boxes stacked up in that area of the garage, where the long wooden paddle can be seen. The barbecue cover is in the background. It is at a distance. The roller door is up and there is bright light in the background. It is difficult to see anything. A large two-metre aluminium ladder is visible near the end of the baby crib. That ladder does not appear in any other photographs of the garage. The vision in that area runs for about two minutes. Jeff Johnson has passed the vision to a business that enhances video. We shall have to wait and see if that enhancement provides any further information. 
Max and the detectives then walk inside the house. It was always my understanding the staircase to the first floor was covered with paper and plastic a day or two at the most after bodies were discovered, where the impressions were discovered after mixing with bleach and fingerprint powder. One of the scenes of crime witnesses stated the carpet was covered on the 24th of April, two days in. But in the walkthrough, it was observed the carpeted stairs were not covered at that time, on 24 April, four days in. That may seem like a small point, but it goes to credibility. If the witness was mistaken about when the carpet was covered, were they mistaken about any other matters? During the walkthrough, Max Seeker was visibly distressed and upset. He ended up having to be physically helped out of the house. So after the comments by the retired detective, I found myself in an uncomfortable position, deciding whether I maintained my position the evidence was interfered with, or accepting the error was due to incompetence. After much consideration, I believed I found a way to put the matter to bed, so to speak. By analysing the entire evidence given by the Sockos, I could satisfy myself and those doubting the issue, explain away why and how the garden fork was missed. First of all, I needed to understand whether this was an ad hoc investigation, a disorganised shambles perhaps, which would explain incompetence occurring. Or was it an example of highly trained forensic officers doing what they were trained to do? Back to trawling through police statements. The following is a part of a statement made by one of the Sockos in respect of the forensic organisation of Operation Bravo Settler, talking about a meeting of forensic officers at the house held on the day the bodies were found. A team of forensic personnel was formed for the purpose of examining the dwelling located at 20 Grass Tree Close. My function was to assist the Principal Scientific Officer, Senior Constable Fiona, with the examination of the crime scene. The role of an assisting Scientific Officer is to act at the direction of the Principal Scientific Officer and perform tasks which would include, but is not limited to, collection and packaging of exhibits, general searching, performing, presumptive tests and taking measurements of relevant rooms or articles. The principal scientific officer is responsible for coordinating scientific staff present and recording general observations, examinations performed and exhibits collected. Socco Senior Sergeant Rich attended the scene and assumed the role of forensic coordinator. So there was a principal scientific officer, an assistant scientific officer and a forensic coordinator. That looked promising. And from my own experience, I can guarantee all three were in and out of the garage during the time they were there. And they said as much in evidence. And as any novice socko will tell you, the first thing you do is photograph the evidence before it is moved. Always. And if you do happen to move something that then becomes significant, you replace it and have it photographed in situ and then seize it for fingerprints and DNA. There were two Sockos involved in the actual search of the garage, as well as another photographing and another videotaping the search. So with the supervisors, there were a total of seven scenes of crime officers involved in Operation Bravo Settler, responsible for ensuring the garage was properly searched. From reading their statements, I estimated the team had over 70 years of policing experience between them, as at 2003. As well as all having qualified as scenes of crime officers, the various Sockos held the following qualifications. The principal scientific officer held a Bachelor of Science and a Master of Science in Forensic Science. The coordinator held a Bachelor of Science and a Diploma in Forensic Investigation. One Socko held a Bachelor of Science and was studying for a Master of Science in Forensic Science. Another Socko held a Bachelor of Applied Science and was enrolled as a Master of Science in Forensic Science. And one Socko held a Certificate of Expertise in the Science of Fingerprinting. These police were not amateurs, nor novices. 
Queensland Police sent their most experienced staff to this triple murder investigation, and as well they should. The result? They saw the garden fork. No one examined it. No one photographed it. No one videotaped it. No one was sure whether they searched behind the barbecue or not. How did the wheels fall off the Soco bus? We do not know why photographs or video were not taken of the garden fork or the barbecue or that area of the garage. Defence barrister De Carlo covered the circumstances surrounding the garden fork extensively at the committal and trial but never received a satisfactory explanation. He was over it, under it, around it, but could never get to the bottom of it. He believed and said the evidence had been made up. So what do we know? The Bajero was parked next to the barbecue. Photographs show the Bajero covered in fingerprint powder. The barbecue and what was behind it do not appear in any of the photographs of the Bajero. A mop, about one metre from the barbecue, was taken possession of. One metre. And a large wooden spoon near the mop. An ashtray containing cigarette butts in front of the Bajero, on a chair, was seized. There are photographs of all these things, in situ, before being seized. It transpires... A knife was found on top of the barbecue in the garage on the second day of searching. No photographs of it in situ exist. No photographs of it at all, in fact, exist. Was it seized? It seems so. It was tested for blood, but the result was negative, which means it was moved. What happened to that knife? We do not know. There's no record of it. I considered that reviewing the actual evidence from the Socos may explain what happened. Unfortunately, the transcripts from the committal and the trial raise more questions than provide answers. On the day the bodies were found, it was believed by investigators and forensic police, as well as the pathologist, that death may have been caused by gunshot wounds, stabbing or blunt force trauma, possibly by a wooden paddle found in the ensuite area. By the second day, Police were well aware all victims had suffered blunt force trauma. The post-mortems were conducted on that day. The pathologist provided police with his findings. A number of police were present at the post-mortems. A three-pronged metal trident over one metre in length found in the upstairs prayer room was seized on day one. Even though no obvious blood was evident on the trident, this was the evidence of one of the Socos involved in the actual search of the garage. A sergeant, no less. He was no novice. I am a sergeant of police stationed at the scientific section, Forensic Services Branch, Brisbane. I hold a Bachelor of Applied Science degree from the Queensland University of Technology, 1991, and I am currently enrolled in a Master of Science in Forensic Science at Griffith University. My duties include the examination of crime scenes and the collection and examination of exhibits. I have over nine years' experience in this type of work. Now, this very experienced Socko told both the committal and the trial that he was only directed to look for a knife and a wooden paddle, nothing else. And that's why he didn't look at the garden fork. You were told something. Why did it cause you to look for a knife? We were told that injuries on the victims had been caused by a knife and possibly other injuries caused by a firearm. So, hence, the search for a knife as a potential weapon and a timber paddle. And the timber paddle we were searching for, I was told information from someone that a timber paddle was located in the ensuite area where the bodies were and a similar timber paddle was alleged to be located, stored or kept in the garage amongst the cooking equipment. We were asked to see if there are any more wooden implements of a similar nature. You recall that being asked of you? Yes, I recall that we were asked to look for a wooden paddle and a knife. Okay, well, did you find a wooden paddle and a knife? 
We were looking for knives that may have blood on them. So we were performing presumptive blood tests on those and the wooden paddle. We located one in the area of those boxes. Okay. And, of course, you saw the barbecue and the gardening equipment when you were searching this area. Absolutely, because a knife was located there. Where the gardening equipment was? Yes. And there's no question in your mind that protruding from the top of the barbecue, you saw the handles of a number of gardening implements, including perhaps a shovel and other items. I don't recall the shovel. I mean, the reason why I allude to gardening equipment is we were trying to understand the purpose of the knife where it was located. It was out of context where you would find a knife in a house. And that's what drew our interest to it and the number of tests we were performing on it to determine if there was blood on it. The evidence in relation to looking for blood on a knife was because at the time, the information was that it was assumed the weapon was a knife. So, hence, none of the other items in the garage, to be specific, none of the other items in the garage were picked up and examined for blood other than a knife or a timber paddle. Okay, and you saw these items on the first day? Yes, there were items there for gardening, which I've just described. All right, a pitchfork? Pitchfork and a shovel, or just a pitchfork. A whippersnipper laying on the ground or hanging on the wall, and a rake or some sort of broom, maybe. But you're looking for anything that might be of forensic value, aren't you? Can I ask you whether you, in respect of those boxes, performed a spiral grid search, a spiral search, a grid search, a line search, or the other search that you couldn't recall? Probably the best question I give you is probably all four. Okay. And, of course, that would involve moving objects to have a look. In order to see the pot, you must have opened the box. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Because the pots weren't exposed, they were in boxes, correct? Absolutely. If we couldn't see in it, we'd have to look into it exactly. Did you, on that day... Look in the garage area? Yes. That day a search then commenced of the house in general, the lower level specifically on the second day. A knife, a timber paddle and possibly a handgun were the items we were searching for on the second day. Witness Shane was tasked to do the same job as you. He went against the western wall, which is almost bare, and at times he spent up to 15 minutes looking at a blank wall to see if you could find a spot of blood? That's true. At a blank wall? That's true. And for the record, photographs and video do exist of the blank western brick wall in the garage. But, witness, if you're looking in that garage for anything that might have blood on it, surely, and if you're involving a number of searches, the grid, and I'll go through them again, And these are your words, the spiral, the grid, the sectoring, the line search. And today you've qualified that, and I accept that by saying I use part of each of these to combine this search. Wouldn't you accept if you're looking for blood, and they're the sorts of things anywhere on that eastern wall that you would be looking at? No, because we were specifically looking for blood that had fallen there as a result of the offence. For example if someone had been stabbed or assaulted in that location. The evidence in relation to looking for blood on a knife was because at the time, the information was that it was assumed the weapon was a knife. The objects behind the barbecue, you know, the assumption is made that, obviously, they're not going to receive blood if the offence has occurred this side of it because it is shadowed by the barbecue. 
So that's exactly why Shane was looking at the brick wall for a period of time because it was a fixed object. We were trying to see if the garage had any relevance to the crime scene. As in, did the offences actually occur in that location? It is not the truth. You're making this up as you go along. Let me quote something from the committal. Do you recall me asking you this question? Tell me what you understand when Fiona told you to examine the garage, including the two vehicles. What does that mean to you? And your answer? Well, it would have been specifically to examine that area for any physical evidence that may relate to the offence. And then I ask you, and is a pitchfork with bloodstains over it that would be shown up when you shone your torch physical evidence that might be related to an offence? And you say... In hindsight, absolutely. Do you recall that? In hindsight, if I had picked up the pitchfork and examined it for blood, I'm sure we wouldn't have had this question right now. All right. So, in effect, you see, your answer at that particular time, and I am suggesting is, was the truth in this sense, that, in effect, you hadn't been told specifically to look for a knife or a fork or a paddle or a gun. They may have been factors that you were looking for, but you were asked to examine the whole of the garage like you would do forensically for any job. That's true. We were examining the garage in context for the offence that had occurred. So, hence, we were looking for blood on the cars, on the walls, if someone had been assaulted in that location. As I have said in the committal, we were looking at items in that, in a superficial search... I think it's probably the best term in that initial early days of a crime scene examination where we, if we don't have to move something, we don't move it. If we can see under, over, behind an object for what is there, we do so and we don't move items. The only difference being in the garage and, as I alluded to in the committal, was a thorough search was made of the boxes and the cooking equipment in order to ensure that there was not a wooden paddle amongst it, and also to look for a knife. In that instance, the boxes could not be looked over, under, in, or behind. You had to open the boxes up to look in. It was clear De Carlo was becoming frustrated with this witness. This witness also gave evidence that he saw other marks on the stairs, similar to the how it started bleach stain previously referred to. However, no other police or forensic personnel saw the marks. The witness did not photograph them. He did not record the event in his notebook. He did not tell anyone until almost two years later. Similar to the maggot evidence in the Stafford case, actually. DiCarlo said this. What excuse are you going to have for not finding the pitchfork or the garden fork? Is there some other excuse you're going to have for that? No, as discussed in the committal proceedings, there was a garden fork there as part of the garden equipment behind the barbecue and that search of the garage was for the purpose of finding a knife or a timber paddle. All right, well, I will talk about what rubbish that is later on. Let's continue on here for a moment. That comment earned an objection from the prosecutor and a rebuke from the trial judge. But you're looking for anything that might be of forensic value, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. But, and obviously if we found a gun, we would bring it to Fiona's attention. So without moving the barbecue, you could see the pitchfork? There was gardening equipment. The pitchfork, shovel, rake or broom. With, by looking behind and down, because we were looking for a knife of whichever size, big or small, so that's what we were looking for. I see. So what you did was, you focused on the issue of the knife. You developed this tunnel vision on the issue of a knife, like the tunnel vision that developed in respect to Max Seeker. I withdraw that. And you ignored other possible implements that could have caused the blunt force. Is that what you're saying? Perhaps that's probably a good description, yes. But you heard, I think. That's what you said, didn't you? Yes, I was informed by either Fiona or Rich or another police officer that we were looking for items, i.e. a wooden paddle or a knife that may have inflicted the injuries. Oh, come on. That's just absolute rubbish. You were just searching for a knife and a wooden paddle? 
Yes, that's true. The wooden paddle was openly there. You could see it in the photo. And you are telling me that you searched, as a scientific officer with 10 years' experience, you zeroed in your mind or you developed this tunnel vision of looking for a knife and a paddle to the to ignore every single other item. Is that what your training was? At the time of the search, we were searching for a knife and a wooden paddle and looking for blood upon those items. That's all you're informed? Yes. There was conversations in relation to a gun early in the piece and obviously if we had found a pistol in our search for a knife, we would have alerted Fiona. How are you going to find a pistol, witness? If you don't move a barbecue, which is covered by a big black cover and has implements behind it. As I've said from the very beginning, whether we move the barbecue or not, I do not recall. I at no time have stated that we didn't or did move that barbecue. What I was going to allude to, the reason that the knife was looked at, it was out of context and in that environment in the garage. The reason the pitchfork wasn't picked up and looked at, it was completely plausible to have a pitchfork amongst other gardening equipment in that location in the garage. All right. Do you recall it specifically mentioning the blunt trauma? I believe the blunt trauma was in reference to the timber paddle. The second Socko who searched the garage was also questioned at length regarding the garden fork. Could I just ask you perhaps straight out, instead of beating around the bush, could you possibly tell me how you could miss, as an experienced scientific officer with the other officer, how you could miss the prospective murder weapon, the alleged murder weapon, when it's standing up and you can see it behind, allegedly behind a barbecue, which is against the northeastern wall where, or around about the area where you find this knife? How could you possibly have missed this item which clearly had stains on it which were presumptive of blood or possibly presumptive of blood? In relation to the garden fork, I recall there being gardening equipment there, right? I recall that we were using a white light source to look at things to see if there was anything. I didn't notice whether or not I specifically looked at the gardening fork or not. And in relation to it being discovered later the information at hand would have indicated the bludgeoning was involved and then it would have been a more likely object to have been used for that sort of activity and came under closer scrutiny. All right. And did you look at any garden tools that you recall? I don't have a specific recollection of searching the garden tools, but I do recall them being there. This is how the principal scientific officer deflected the questions regarding the garden fork. You see, some five days later, as I understand it, there was a pitchfork found with blood on it belonging to, or at least which the DNA said, is a mixture of cities, kunals and neelmas. Now that was with a group of other tools and where some boxes were in the garage. Are you saying that you didn't, in the several days that you were there as a crime scene investigator, You didn't see it? On the first evening of the 22nd, only the path to the door was examined in the garage area. They're just going for a stroll. Sunday stroll. That must have been if they missed the fork. Pitchfork, mustn't they? Please explain to me how you could miss that object. I can't explain. But what I'm suggesting to you, if you saw sticking up from that barbecue a handle of an implement, such as a shovel or something like that, It wouldn't be a quantum leap or outside your expertise or training to remove that barbecue so you could have a look at it, would it? No. Okay. Indeed, it would be the practice. Would you agree with that? Yes. Okay. So, you don't know that in the photos themselves, it's probably a metre away from where the pitchfork and other garden tools were? I don't recall the exact location. Now, we have heard that the Sockos had seen the garden fork, but were looking for a knife or wooden paddle. Even though from day two, they were all aware blunt force trauma was involved in the murders, and they were in and out of the garage. And they could not recall if they moved the barbecue or not, to look for the gun or knife, to see if a weapon had been thrown away, perhaps behind the barbecue.
So how was a garden fork eventually identified as a murder weapon? Very easily, as it turns out. And do you say that when you went into that garage with Detective Joe, some 13 days later, that the first thing Joe drew to your attention was this, as opposed to the rake or the hoe, the first thing he drew your attention to was in fact the handle of that garden fork? Not the handle, sir. He looked over the edge and could see down and said, Hang on, what's that? I asked him to pick it up, pull it out, and that's when we discovered those marks, sir. And this is how the exhibit officer dealt with the matter. Okay. Do you recall any of those comments? Not exactly. Like there was comments made about the fork, and because previous to that, nothing had indicated to us that we were looking for the fork. There was a paddle and there were some other things that were examined extensively from the house and there had been no indication from any pathologist anything about the fork that a fork could possibly have been used. Which was clearly incorrect. The next question should have been, but wasn't, so why take the three-pronged trident from the prayer room the very first day? So, in summary, seven trained scenes of crime officers with numerous science degrees between them, extensive training and many, many years of on-the-job experience, saw but did not inspect a garden fork in an area they were searching for weapons, knowing full well they were looking for a weapon that could cause blunt force trauma. But a detective with a skill set in other areas but no apparent SOCO training looked over the barbecue and saw what appeared to be stains on the garden fork two weeks later. I reflected whether this was a case of incompetence. If it was, it was on an epic scale. It would be fair to say, I believe, Queensland Police would not want that crew on any future crime scene examinations. Was the evidence interfered with? Planted, perhaps? The problem with that scenario is that if a rogue officer interfered with the evidence, a number of other police covered for him or her, or at the very least, looked the other way. That would take fabricating evidence and conspiracy to a whole other level. Perjury by a number of police, which almost always ends in prison time, in a murder trial, and a triple murder trial at that. Those claims would send conspiracy theorists into overdrive. So, after all this, can I say I am satisfied the garden fork was missed due to incompetence, inexperience, or simply by mistake? Sadly, I cannot. Let me ask you this. If there was no rogue officer, there was no tampering with the evidence, that the garden fork was sitting behind the barbecue waiting to be found all that time. How do you logically and rationally explain the issues with the evidence? How did seven highly trained and experienced forensic officers miss the murder weapon hiding in plain sight? I look forward to the explanations flooding my inbox. And that is without even starting again on the foot impression evidence. So after all that, I find myself still with this opinion. There is no one defining part of the Garden Fork evidence you have heard in episodes 16, 17 and now in this episode from which you can categorically conclude the evidence was tampered with. But when you join all the dots together, this is the only safe conclusion. Now, if this was the only problem with the evidence in the Singh case, I believe you could walk away from it. Excuse it. Tired police working long hours and many days in very distressing circumstances. Working in an extremely violent and disturbing crime scene. Seeing death is never easy. Never. But this is not the only problem with this case. There is also the disturbing evidence surrounding the foot impressions. The lack of obtaining video evidence from Stafford's shopping centre. The refusal to interview the next door neighbour, Lisa L, 
who could provide an alibi for the Sunday night. The refusal to use the evidence of Seeker's niece, Malena P., who could provide an alibi for the Tuesday afternoon. The evidence of some other car being seen in a nearby street on the Sunday night moulded to fit Seeker's car. And do not start me on the confession evidence of witness Andrea B. And the list goes on. This case is a train wreck. I call it a miscarriage of justice. There are figures suggesting there are an excess of 300 miscarriages of justice per year in Australia, in the District and Supreme Courts. Another way of describing them are wrongful convictions. But I will just focus on the big one, murder. Max Seeker is, or was, seemingly not a nice person. But is he a killer? Was he wrongfully convicted of these murders? There have been any number of standout wrongful convictions in our lifetime, but that is perhaps a story for another time. I want to focus on this case. Was this a wrongful conviction? A miscarriage of justice? Was there police corruption involved? What would motivate police to fabricate evidence? They did not know Max Seeker. They did not know the Sings. Was it a case of noble cause corruption? For those listeners who are not aware of or do not understand noble cause corruption, Wikipedia describes it as follows. Noble cause corruption is corruption caused by the adherence to a teleological ethical system, suggesting that people will use unethical or illegal means to attain desirable goals, a result which appears to benefit the greater good. Where traditional corruption is defined by personal gain, noble cause corruption forms when someone is convinced of their righteousness and will do anything within their powers to achieve the desired result. An example of noble cause corruption is police misconduct, committed in the name of good ends, or neglect of due process through a moral commitment to make the world a safer place to live. Let me explain it this way. I will use the pronoun he throughout these comments, but it could equally apply to she. Was the police officer so confronted by the scenes he saw at 20 Grass Tree Close Bridgman Downs, so affronted by the violence, driven by anger, frustration, sympathy, a need for justice, wanting to make the world a safer place, that he took matters into his own hands. It would be hard to blame him. But if he did take matters into his own hands, I do blame him. As I said, this goes to the very core of our justice system. Add to that the presumption of guilt from the first day, the 22nd of April, that Max Seeker committed the murders. And to the mix... Add the continual denials of guilt by Max Seeker. Arrogance, perhaps. Appearing to cooperate with police and answer all their questions. Feigning sorrow. Pretending to be distraught and sobbing uncontrollably during the walkthrough with the detectives. And as the days passed, the lack of evidence being found implicating Max Seeker. No admissions. No eyewitnesses. No early indications of forensic evidence connecting him to the crime. But plenty of suspicion, innuendo, finger-pointing. A car, maybe his, seen a few streets away on the night of the murders. Claims that he was violent toward Nilma. The break-up of their relationship. Revenge, perhaps. An oft-heard claim by jilted lovers. If I can't have you... No one will. The Singh family pointing their finger squarely at Max Seeker as being the killer. Did that officer see Max Seeker getting away with murder? Beating the system? A criminal thumbing his nose at the justice system? And if it wasn't Max Seeker who committed the murders, who was it? And as you have heard, it was more than 18 years before the evidence relating to Joe Cool from the Solomon Islands, came to the surface. Did that officer, with noble intentions, 
with no motive other than to ensure a vicious killer was convicted. A killer he knew in his heart had committed these disgusting murders, but was slipping through their fingers. Did he interfere with the crime scene and plant evidence pointing to Max Seeker? By fabricating the evidence surrounding the garden fork and fabricating the evidence surrounding the foot impressions on the stairs. I don't think we will ever know. And if a rogue officer was at work, like a loose cannon rolling round the deck of a ship in a big swell doing these deeds, he placed his fellow officers in a difficult position. Did they turn him in and compromise the entire investigation, lose all the hard work they had done, or did they turn a blind eye and, where necessary, corroborate him? After all, everyone knew Max Seeker was the killer. Perhaps it was some time before it dawned on them that their crime scene had been compromised, that they had been duped by one of their own. By then it was too late. There was no going back. The seven Sockos and the investigating detectives are the only ones who know exactly what went on in that crime scene. They now cannot recant their evidence. They cannot admit the garden fork was not behind the barbecue when they were searching the garage. If they do, jail awaits them. If their sworn testimony is the truth, they will forever be branded as incompetent fools. Harsh, but that is the reality. But if the evidence is made up, they are perjurers, liars. If they help secure the conviction of an innocent man and sentence him to 35 years imprisonment, that is something they will have to live with for the rest of their lives, and in some cases haunt them. If you are wondering the significance of the Garden Fork being the murder weapon, it is this. It was a crown case that Max Seeker, in the heat of the moment, murdered Neilma, and Connell and City were witnesses and therefore had to die. A tragic domestic violence event. That theory was never ever going to fly anyway. The killer, whoever it was, brought their own bleach and blue bucket to the crime scene. The killers came to the Singh house with murders on their minds. To suggest the killers hoped to find a suitable weapon at the house is beyond tragic. Clearly, they brought a weapon with them. To admit the killers came to the house with their own murder weapon makes it infinitely more difficult to link Max Seeker to the murders, particularly as the weapon has never been found, excluding the garden fork, of course. That's it for a noble cause. Thank you for joining me in this latest episode of Loose Ends. Please join me in the next episode where I speak with Shiv Seeker, Max Seeker's wife, if she is available, who has some interesting insights into this mass murderer. If you follow the podcast, you will be advised when a further episode is released. Please rate and review the podcast. It does help. If you like the podcast, tell your family and friends. If you have questions, information or feedback, you can contact me via the Facebook page, Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy, or via my email address, looseends2003 at outlook.com. This podcast was made possible with the grateful assistance of the ACAST Creator Network. Music Before I Go by RKVC. You'll find all my contact details in the show notes at the end of each episode. Thanks again for listening.